0: Our our scripture text this evening is from the book of 1 John. It's 1 John chapter 3, verses 16 to 18. This this text is uh, in a a section of 1 John chapter 3 dealing with love. Um, So there's a whole section here in which these three verses sit. Uh, I'd like to read for us. Uh, verses 10 through 18. However, the scripture, or the sermon text is just verses 16 to 18. So if you turn to 1 John chapter 3, I just want you to get some of that context, and I'll refer back to some of these verses a little bit in the sermon. But the sermon text is 16 to 18, but I'll read 10, uh, 10 to 18. So 1 John chapter 3, we'll read verses 10 uh, through 18. This is This is God's word. By this, it's evidence who are the children of God and who are the children of the devil. Whoever does not practice righteousness is not of God, nor is the one who does not love his brother. For this is the message that you have heard from the beginning, that we should love one another. We should not be like Cain, who was of the evil one and murdered his brother. And why did he murder him? Because his own deeds were evil and his brother's righteous. Do not be surprised, brothers that the world hates you. We know that we have passed out of death into life because we love the brothers. Whoever does not love abides in death. Everyone who hates his brother is a murderer, and you know that no murderer has eternal life abiding in him. Here's a sermon text. By this we know love, that he laid down his life for us and we ought to lay down our lives for the brothers. But if anyone has the world's good and sees his brother in need, yet closes his heart against him, How does God's love abide in him? Little children, let us not love in word or talk, but in deed and in truth. And we'll end the reading of the word of God there. I remember when I was uh, a child, a little kid, I was growing up outside of uh, Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. That's where I'm from originally. It was the, the early 2000s. And a lot of children around me were wearing little bracelets, and they had four letters on them, uh, WWJD, what would Jesus do? And the implication of the question was, Christians ought to do whatever Jesus would do, of course. Now, Christians started wearing those WWJD bracelets, you know, somewhere in in the 90s, the 1990s, and that trend, you know, carried on into the 2000s. And really, the, the whole thing became a movement, the WWJD movement. Now, since that time, there's been many criticisms of that movement and that, that question, what would Jesus do? And the reason that, that people criticize that is because if someone were to try to reduce uh, Christianity down to that question, what would Jesus do? then really what they've done is taking Christianity and making it, make, made it a moralistic religion. That is, it's just about how you live, if you live a right life. If Christianity was boiled down to how we live, it would be a moralistic religion, a religion that simply focuses on mimicking Jesus rather than focusing on the salvation that has been accomplished by Jesus and is offered to us in the gospel as a free gift that we receive by faith, not by works. So when it comes to the gospel, which is the central focus of Christianity, the real question there is, W-H-J-D, what has Jesus done? Which is that he has come to live, die, and rise again for the salvation of his people. That's what the gospel is about. First Corinthians 15, Paul says, the gospel is centered around what Jesus did, that he died on the cross for our sins in accordance with the scriptures. Now, does this mean that what would Jesus do is a bad question? No, it's definitely not a bad question. It just shouldn't be used as a summary for the gospel or a summary of Christianity, because it's not a question that deals with how, how somebody's saved. It doesn't summarize the gospel. Yet, what would Jesus do is actually a very good question when it comes to Christian living and how we are to serve and obey God. See, true Christians, you know, those who have been born again, they're given that new heart by God, that with new desires. And those new desires are to obey God and to love people. That's part of what God does when he saves a person. He gives them desires to obey his commandments, to love the brothers. We've seen this, uh, you can see this in 1 John. We just read 1 John 3.10. It says, by this, the children of God and the children of the devil are obvious. Anyone who does not practice righteousness is not of God. So there's that evidence of being born again. You must practice righteousness. That's an evidence. And it says, nor the one who does not love his brother. That's another evidence. In 1 John 3, 14, he says, We know that we've passed out of death into life because we love the brethren. He who does not love abides in death. So obeying God and loving the brothers are evidences that you are saved. Those things don't save you. They're evidence that you have been saved. So those are those fruits. And and obeying God and loving the brothers, they always go together. In fact, loving others is really a summary of God's commandments. We are to treat each other the way God commands us to, and that's how we are to love one another. Because if you're disobeying God, you're not loving. And if you're loving... You're obeying God. They always go together in that way. And that's why Jesus said the two great commandments are what? Loving God and loving neighbor. Those are commandments, but they go together with love there. The whole law and the prophets, he says, are summarized by loving God and loving neighbor. So obedience to God and, and love, they go they go hand in hand. But what John wants us to see here in 1 John three sixteen to 18, is he wants us to understand love he's taking it to that next level. He wants us to understand it on so clearly and unmistakably. He wants you to understand what obedience and love are really all about. He's doing what what Jesus himself did. when Jesus said in John 13, 34, a new commandment I give to you that you love one another, even as I have loved you, that you also love one another. Jesus said that. John's echoing that here in verse John 3, 16. Now Jesus said it's a new commandment. Now it's it's not new in the sense that love was not a new commandment when, when Jesus said that. that the command to love was commanded in the Old Testament. Okay, that's not the new part. The new part is the the clarity in which we understand love and the motivation that we have to love, which is this. He says, "As I have loved you, you are to love one another." And that makes, we can see that, what that looks like is Jesus has come and he has loved. And he loves us and he loved his disciples. So we have Jesus giving himself as the example, the ultimate example of what to look at when it comes to what it means to being loving. So that the standard to know what love looks like is even clearer and is a stronger motivation because we've seen Jesus do it. The standard is we're to love others in the same way that Jesus loves us. And the motivation is we are to love because he loves us. So the standard is we love like Jesus. And our motivation is we love because he has loved us. Okay, so let's let's look at that here. Looking at Jesus as the standard for how to love. Look at 1 John 3.16. It says, we know love by this, that he laid down his life for us and we ought to lay down our lives for the brethren. So we know love by this. The standard of what it means to love is Jesus. That's what love looks like, is how Jesus loves. That's how we know what love is. There's no other place to to find out what love is besides looking at Jesus. So if you want to know what it means to be loving, he's saying, look at Jesus. Now, you know as well as I do that the world, you know, the unbelieving world, has really got this messed up when talking about love. This is a generalization, but it's a true generalization. In general, what the world calls love is not love, in general. The world calls all, all sorts of evil things love, sometimes. And of course, nothing that is evil is loving, because Jesus is not evil at all, but he is perfectly loving. So if God has said that something is sinful, it, it cannot be loving at the same time. Right? You need to understand that. That's just the way it is. Love and, and righteousness, they go together. They're not opposites. So true love is shown in the character of Jesus, we're told here. And since the world doesn't know Jesus, well, it's no surprise and They don't really know what love is then either. Because you only can know love by this, looking at Jesus, and they don't know him. So the world may claim to know Jesus, and they may even claim to love Jesus. And they may extol him as a person. uh, uh, They may extol Jesus because he is so loving. They may say Jesus is so loving. But if the Jesus that they're talking about affirms evil things, well, it's not the real Jesus that they're talking about because the real Jesus only affirms what is right. The real Jesus is the Jesus revealed in the Bible. You can learn all that you need to know about Jesus In the Bible. You can learn from him about him. So you need to understand this as as Christians, you need to hear this. Just as the world doesn't know what love is because it doesn't know Jesus, you as Christians will not really know what love is very well unless you're focusing and looking at Jesus, unless you're understanding Jesus, unless you're knowing, looking unto Jesus. Now, what do I mean by that? Looking unto Jesus. What does that mean? Where? Where do you look? Looking unto Jesus means this, that you are depending upon him for help to be like him, which means you are praying to him for help. Hebrews 4.16 says, Therefore, let us draw near with confidence to the throne of grace so that we we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Now, when's our time of need? It is literally every minute of your life. And you need grace and mercy from Jesus. And he says, you come to me. Come to me with confidence and I will give you grace. I will give you mercy to help you. That's a great invitation. We just don't do it. We need to go to him. Do you need grace to be more loving? Do you need grace to be more loving? He says, come to me, I'll give it to you. I'll give you the grace to be more loving. So looking to Jesus means, Jesus, help me. Secondly, looking to Jesus means that you get to know him. You get to know who he is. You get to know his character by reading about him, by reading what he has revealed about himself to you in the Bible. If you don't know who Jesus is, if you don't know Jesus' character, you have no chance of knowing what love is. That's what this text is saying. We know love by this because of Jesus Now he acts. Philippians 2.5, Paul said, Have this attitude in yourselves, which was also in Christ Jesus. Now, you won't know what that means unless you know the attitude of Christ Jesus. You can't have the same attitude as Jesus unless you know what his attitude is, okay? You have to have the same mind of Jesus. You have to know what he's like then. And you won't be able to unless you know him. You have to know him. So if you want to love like Jesus, then you have to know how Jesus loves. So let's look at how Jesus loves. He says, we know love by this, that he laid down his life for us. That's the ultimate way that Jesus demonstrated his love. You cannot love more than that. That, That's the ceiling of love. There is no greater love than what he did. Jesus himself said that. John 15, 13, greater love has no one than this, that one lay down his life for his friends. There is no greater love than what he did. That's it. And there's so much contained in this phrase. Let's, Let's break down this phrase. He says, he laid down his life, he laid down. Focus on that. He laid down. It means he, he, he voluntarily laid down. He wasn't coerced. He wasn't forced. He did it on purpose. In other words, Jesus was not nailed to the cross because the bad guys caught him. Right? He went to the cross on purpose. Why did he do that? To demonstrate his love for you. If you're a believer, he did it to demonstrate his love for you and to glorify God the Father. Jesus himself said in John 10, 14 and 15, I'm the good shepherd and I know my own and my own know me, even as the father knows me and I know the father and I lay down my life for the sheep. He lays it down freely, his own life. Which brings us to the second point here. He laid down his life voluntarily. You know, there's nothing more valuable to human beings than their own life. There's nothing more valuable to you than your life. That's the thing that you want to preserve and protect the most. You want to save your own skin more than anything else. We desperately want to protect ourselves. And yet, Jesus voluntarily gave his up. He purposefully laid down the most valuable thing any human possesses in his very life. Why? Well, he says he laid down his life for us. For us. So he voluntarily gave up his most valuable possession. Yet he did this not for himself, but for his people. He sacrificed himself for us. Why? Because he loves us. Greater love has no one than this, that one lay down his life for his friends. That's why he did it. He died on the cross to take our place, to be a substitute for us, to take the wrath of God that we deserve. He says, yes, I'll do that. I will freely give up my life for these people and take the wrath of God for them so that they can be saved. He didn't do it. He wasn't coerced. He volunteered just out of love for us and out of love for the Father. Now, here's the kicker for 1 John 3.16 is the last part of it. And we ought to lay down our lives for the brethren. That's the application that John draws for us. The plain application when you examine Jesus' love for us, love that went so far as to lay down his life for us, then we're supposed to lay down our lives for our brothers and sisters in the Lord. Now, of course, John doesn't mean that we are atoning for each other's sins. We don't have the same effects of Jesus' death. But what he means is that we have to have the same self-sacrificing attitude that Jesus has, the same willingness to sacrifice ourselves for each other. We can't atone for each other's sins, but we can lay down our lives and sacrifice ourselves for each other. Now, when you look at that phrase, he says, lay down our lives for the brothers. You may be thinking, well, does he really mean like, like actually die? Like lay down your life and die for your Christian brothers in the church? Does he mean that we should be willing to die for Christians? Yeah, he does mean that. There's really no way to get out of that when you have the, the parallel here. Jesus actually died for us. He laid down his life for us. So we're supposed to, what? Do the same. That's exactly what John's saying. We're supposed to be willing to do the same, to actually lay down our lives for the brothers. So if we're going to love like Jesus, which is, of course, John's point in this verse, we cannot show greater love than by actually laying down our lives for our friends, for our brothers in Christ. Now, when you to look. Think about the contrast here in this whole passage, we read 10 through 18. There's a contrast here between Cain from Cain and Abel, who murdered, you know, Cain who murdered his brother, a contrast between Cain and Jesus. And if you look at uh, verses 11 and 12 of chapter 3 here, it says, For this is the message which you have heard from the beginning, that we should love one another, not as Cain, who was of the evil one and slew his brother. Okay, so we know, we know about that. Cain murdered his brother. And look at verses 15 and 16. We have Cain contrasted with Jesus. Everyone who hates his brother is a murderer. There's there's Cain. And you know that no murderer has eternal life abiding in him. We know, love by this, that he laid down his life for us, and we have to lay down our lives for the brother. So you have a contrast between Cain and Jesus here. And John Stott said this. He says, quote, Hate is negative, seeks the other person's harm, and leads to activity Against him, even to the point of murder. And that's illustrated by Cain rose up against his brother Abel and killed him. On the other hand, love is positive, seeks the other person's good, and leads to activity for him, even to the point of self sacrifice. Christ laid down his life for us. So you see the difference there? Cain is the illustration of the world, the world who hates others, who seeks other people's harm, and goes so far as to kill them, to take their life. And Jesus is the example of how Christians are supposed to behave. Jesus loves. He seeks our good. He goes so far as to give his life for us. Stott said, contrasting Cain and Jesus, a person's life is his most precious possession. Consequently, to rob him of it is the greatest sin we can commit against him while to give one's own life on his behalf is the greatest possible expression of a love for him. You see, Cain took Abel's life, and Jesus gave his own life. Cain took the greatest thing away, Abel's life. Jesus gave the greatest thing, his own life. Another commentator wrote that love is that giving impulse. Love gives. On the other other hand, hate takes steals to hurt others. So to love is to give oneself in any and all righteous ways that you can give yourself, including even to the point of dying for someone. Now, we may be thinking, well, when, when would I have to actually die for Christian brothers? Why, when would you have to do that? Now, of course, John's not saying that we should go out of our way and try to get killed for Christians. But he's saying we should be willing to die when necessary for our brother's good. Now, this is, you know, not fun to think about, these scenarios. But there are actual real types of occasions where a circumstance could arise where you could actually literally physically lay down your life for your Christian brothers. For example, if there is a a shooter, a gunman, One Christian may be able to protect his brothers by risking his own life for them. Or if a Christian brother is being persecuted, perhaps being beaten up or arrested, what will we do? Will we shy away from being associated with him like Peter did to Jesus when Jesus was arrested? You know, in the book of Hebrews, uh, the Hebrews there were commended for sticking together in times of persecution. It says in Hebrews 10, uh, 32, but remember the former days when after being enlightened, you endured a great conflict of sufferings. Listen, partly by being made public spectacle through reproaches and tribulations and partly by becoming sharers with those who were so treated. So he's saying some of you were persecuted directly. Some of you just stood with your brothers who were persecuted. He says, for you showed sympathy to the prisoners, And accepted joyfully the seizure of your property, knowing that you yourselves have a better possession and a lasting one. So even though they weren't being killed at that point, you got people getting their stuff taken away, people being mocked publicly. And what would we do? Maybe we'd shy away and say, I'm not going to get close to that guy. He's my Christian brother, but I'm going to act like I don't know him. Now they would stand up there with him and say, you mock me too. They stood together. That's a form of laying down your life. Now, of course, these situations where you're being treated that way, you don't know what's going to happen to you. These Christian brothers were willing to die. It didn't come to that for them, but they were willing. Who knows what would happen when they're going through tribulations and being public spectacles. They could have very well been mistreated to the point of dying. Another possible scenario is when Christians have to meet um, secretly because Christianity is... Illegal in countries. If, a, if one Christian was captured and threatened upon pain of death to reveal the meeting place of Christians, he could refuse to tell them and lay down his life to protect his brothers. There's many kinds of scenarios where Christians, maybe not here in this country right now, maybe in the future, maybe not, but in other countries, they have to do this sort of thing. And in the past throughout church history, they've done these things. They've laid down their lives for the brothers. And that's the calling that we have here. Love is a fruit of the Spirit. You know, the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace. Love, and that's no trifling thing. That's not a small matter. You read through that, you just kind of, oh, love, love, love. This is very high calling. It requires love for the brothers so far that you give up your most valued possession, your life. Yet, as Stott says, true love is revealed not only in that supreme sacrifice, but it's also expressed in all lesser givings as well. So we've talked about the ceiling of love, laying down your life. You can't do greater love than that. But then John brings it down here to the floor, to real basic stuff here in verse 17. So let's look at verse 17. But whoever has the world's goods and sees his brother in need and closes his heart against him, how does the love of God abide in him? So of course, although the calling includes going up to dying for your brothers, and those kinds those kinds of scenarios though don't happen every day for us, John brings it down here to this level. It's very basic stuff here, this scenario that he that he imagines for us. This is loving in a in a practical way, and this is so important. You know, some of us would be would claim or be willing to claim. Yeah, I'll die for the brothers. I'll be the hero. We speak of heroism as if it's no big deal. I'll take a bullet for you for sure because we're not really that concerned that that's really going to happen to us. Yet we're, we, might be, we might be willing to say we'll do these great acts, but then we're not really willing to love in practical, real-life scenarios that we actually face day by day. I remember an illustration where, uh, from Paul Washer. He was talking about how he would, he would speak to young men young men, and these young men would talk about how, how much they loved their wives, you know, how deep their love for their wives was. And they would say stuff like this. They would wax eloquently and say, for my wife, you know, I would, I would cross the swiftest rivers and climb the highest mountains and descend into the darkest caves and fight the wildest beasts because I love my wife so deeply. And then he'd say, okay, guys, but will you do the dishes? And they say, oh, no, no, that's a woman's work, you know. <laughs> most likely, you're not going to have to sacrifice your life. Most likely, for the brothers. But there are lesser sacrifices that we need to give out of love for each other. So the scenario here in verse 17 is like this. There's a Christian. Let's call him Bill, okay? Bill has the world's goods. That is, Bill has enough for himself and for his family, and he has Enough left over that he's able to help those who are in need. Now, Bill sees another Christian. Let's call him Jack. And Jack does not have the world's goods. You know, he's in need. He's poor. He's lost his possessions or or something happened, you know, theft or disaster or something. He doesn't have his basic needs being met. Bill sees Jack and knows that Jack is in need. And Bill has enough to help Jack with his need. Okay, that's the scenario. Here's the problem. Bill closes his heart to Jack. In other words, he shuts out his compassion for him. Bill ignores Jack's need. He doesn't help him. He doesn't give to him. This is really practical. Bill is not loving Jack. It's not that Bill is unable to help Jack. It's just that he's unwilling to. And that's just not love. That's John's point here. He is not willing to give or willing to sacrifice for others. Even, even something small, something so basic as that. So if Jesus loved us so much that he would give up his life, doesn't it follow that we should be willing to give up anything less than that as well? Some of our material possessions for a brother who doesn't have his needs met? It's so obvious that John asked the question, how does the love of God abide in him and Bill in this scenario? How could the love of God abide in Bill? How could you think that Bill loved Jack in that scenario? But then he's he basically saying, how can you think that Bill loved God looking at that scenario? How can the love of God abide in him? So John's just laying it out there. Bill's salvation is in question here. Does Bill even really have love in his heart? Because love is an evidence of salvation. Now I want you to hear this. If true Christians are not going to be loving at all times. You will not be. I am not. Not at all times. But true Christians recognize that and they and they want to. They want to love like Jesus. A true Christian could be selfish toward Jack, but that true Christian would, would confess their sins and recognize that Jesus is faithful and just to forgive us our sins. Yet the man who is obstinate, who's stubborn, and his lack of love, his, his life of self-seeking. He's like, no, I'm not going to do that. I'm not going to give. And John's saying, there's no, there's no love of God in him. He's not a real believer. Jesus said, if you love me, you'll keep my commandments. So how can you say that you love God? If you won't even, your brother is starving and you won't help him. There's no love there. How can someone claim to love Jesus and yet refuse, refuse to keep the command of Jesus? To love his brothers. One commentator said, of course, we never do this perfectly. That's right. But to the extent that there is a reality of this kind of love in our lives, there will be a compelling testimony to the love of Christ. So don't get me wrong. You will not be perfectly loving like Jesus. But If you're a Christian, there will be an element of that in you. And you'll be growing in that and you'll desire that. I don't want to be so selfish. You know, James in the book of James argues a very similar point here that John does in James two fourteen to 16. He says, what use is it, my brothers, if someone says he has faith but has no works? Can that faith save him? And here's the scenario he gives. If a brother or sister is without clothing and in need of daily food, and one of you says to them, go in peace, be warmed and be filled, and that you do not give him what's necessary for their body, what use is that? So the scenario is a Christian comes to you and says, I have no food, I have no clothes, help me. You say, well, just go be warm. I and mean, you do nothing else, slam the door in their face. You're not helping them. He says, how, how in the world could, could you really claim to have faith in Jesus if you refuse to help a brother with his basic needs? And John's saying a very similar thing. How can you really claim to love God without helping your brother with his basic needs? So John here has hit, the two, you know, the floor and the ceiling of love. The bottom level is just giving to your brother to meet their basic needs. I mean, that's obvious. That's so obvious. And at the top level, it's going so far as to give up your life for the brothers. Now, what that means, of course, is that from the floor to the ceiling of love, we do everything in between in terms of giving ourselves for the benefit of others. Loving in the little things, loving in the, in the big things, loving in the middle things. We have to do it all. That's the idea of laying down your life. It means you give it all. Up to and including your life, but everything under that as well. Whatever is required for you to love, you lay it down. You give it. You sacrifice it. Now, of course, all that sounds good, and that's fine. That's dandy in theory. What's that going to look like on a practical level for you and me? It does no good just to speak of these things, which is what John says in verse 18. Look there. Little children, let us not love with word or with tongue, but in deed and truth. Now you notice here, these are these are hard sayings some of these things are that he's just laid out for us. So John, being pastoral and kind, he calls us his little children, which he does throughout the book. That's his fatherly way of coming down and giving you a hug. He's calling you to a serious and high calling, but he's calling it to you in kindness, not neglecting his sweetness and kindness in doing so. He's, he's demonstrating love while he's calling us to lay down our lives for each other. John's call to himself and to us, you notice he says, let us not love. It's both him and us. He's saying, don't just claim to be loving. Prove it with your actions. He says, don't love in just word or with tongue. That is, don't just talk the talk, you know, but walk the walk. Don't make empty, insincere claims to be loving, because there's really no good in that. Because true love shows itself in action. Jesus didn't just say, well, yeah, I'll I'll die for them, and then just didn't actually do it. He actually demonstrated love by actually laying down his life for us. You're showing love by the way that you treat and act towards others, not simply saying that you love people. Because love is an action word. We love by what we do. And that includes what you say, how we speak to people, can be loving. But it's not just saying that I love people. That doesn't make me loving. It's, it's demonstrated by how I talk to them, about them, and how I act toward them. Here's a proverb, Proverbs 20, verse 6. It's a convicting one, one we should know, I think. Proverbs 20, verse 6 says, Many a man proclaims his own steadfast love, but a faithful man who can find. And you think you make it the idea that everybody says they're loving. Nobody's going to say, I'm a real hateful person. You know, they're going to say, yeah, I love people. I love people. But Solomon says, but really, where are they? Where are the true loving people? Many Everybody says they love, but who actually loves? Who's a faithful man who can find a really actually loving person? Someone who lays down his life for others. Where, where are they? There's far more people who say they're loving than are actually loving. So what are some practical ways that we can demonstrate Christ-like love? Now, that's a big question. How can we demonstrate Christ-like love? There's like a million ways you can do that. So first, I want to note that we're called to love everybody, all people. But this passage here specifically calls us to love the brothers. So we're going to focus on this. How can we love other Christians well? We're going to focus on that. Now, the first point I want to make is this. If you're going to love like Christ, you have to love particular people. Now, what do I mean by that? It's easier for us to say, yeah, I love the church and I love the brothers out there, some sort of corporate entity there. But if we're going to be genuine in our love, we're going to get practical with it and love real and actual individuals that are in our lives. There's a commentator uh, who said this. This is great. This is a great insight. Listen to this quote. He says, it is easier to be enthusiastic about humanity with a capital H Than it is to love individual men and women. Especially those who are uninteresting, exasperating, depraved, and otherwise unattractive. Loving everybody in general may be an excuse for loving nobody in particular. You see that? Oh, I love people. Okay, who are they? I love individual. I love this person. It's not some faceless entity. So we're going to get down to the real deal reality of who am I loving? Who am I loving towards? Put a face to that. So secondly, as that quote indicated, we're loving particular people and then we're loving people even if they're difficult to love. This is really, really important. Do we love Christians when they're difficult to love? Do we love Christians when they're sinning? When they're sinning against us or sinning against people in our family or our close friends? Or do we just say, you know, I hate maybe don't say it, but act hatefully toward them? Do we just love them when they're treating us well? Do we love Christians when they're annoying to us? Because sometimes we do annoy each other. Or, you know, sometimes we we make ourselves sound really pious and say, well, they're, they're bringing a bad name upon Jesus, and that's our excuse to act hateful toward them. We need to love people no matter how they're acting because that's how Jesus loves us. Jesus did not lay down his life for you because you were good or because you were really nice and loving towards him. You know, when you think about Jesus' love, we also, we often rightly call that unconditional love, right? We think of Jesus, we think, he loves me with unconditional love. Now, you ever think about what that means, unconditional love? That means that Jesus' love is not dependent upon whether or not we meet certain conditions. He doesn't love us so long as we do X, Y, and Z. He doesn't love us if we're good enough. He loves us despite that we're failures and weak. He doesn't stop loving us even though we fall flat in our face like every day. He doesn't stop loving us even when we're selfish and unloving. You know, one one author said, just as Jesus did, we're to love without regard for the righteousness or goodness of those we seek to love. We are to love whether people love us or not. This kind of love is the mark of the Christian, Jesus teaches us. End quote. In the church, you may feel like this person is not being loving towards me. And our response is, I'm not going to be loving towards them. And that is wrong. Jesus loves us unconditionally. That means... It doesn't matter what you're doing; he's going to love you anyway. And we're supposed to be the, the same. Somebody's being mean and unloving; we love them anyway. So far that we would lay down our lives for them. That's what Jesus did—the sort of love which loves regardless of how they act. That's a distinguishing mark of Christ-like love. Christ-like love is self-sacrificial, and it doesn't matter how bad you are. Jesus taught this himself, Luke six. You know this, but maybe you haven't thought about it. He says, if you love those who love you, what credit is that to you? If you love those who love you, well, what credit is that to you? Even sinners love those who love them. If you do good to those who do good to you, what credit is that to you? For even sinners do the same. Because what's that? That's selfish love. You know, I'll do for you what you do for me. But what we give to people when they do nothing for us or do negative things to us? He goes on, if you lend to those from whom you expect to receive, what credit is that to you? For even sinners lend to sinners in order to receive back the same amount. But love your enemies and do good and lend, expecting nothing in return. And your reward will be great and you will be sons of the Most High. Listen to this. For he himself is kind to ungrateful and evil men. That's how God loves Christ-like love is self-sacrificing, it's self-giving. It does not expect to receive anything in return. I don't do that. I suspect that you don't do that very well. Not expecting anything in return, just laying it out, just laying your life down. But true love gives and it gives and it gives and it expects nothing in return. Think about this. Listen to this quote. Are we to love only our submissive children? and reject those who are rebellious? This is not how Jesus has loved us. Are we only to love our children when they're obedient or good and have nothing to do with them when they're disobedient and unloving to us? That's not the way that Jesus loves us. Every believer knows that Christ is full of patience, kindness, forbearance, forgiveness, and grace toward us over and over again, We are all cold-hearted, slow to love him, reluctant to obey him, unwilling to change, struggling to obey, and yet he continues to love us. This is how he calls us to treat our own children, our spouses, and other people in our homes, in our churches, in our workplaces, and out in the world. This is the new commandment of Christ-like love that's to govern our lives. End quote. Just think think about that. We say, I love you, I love you. But if you think about love as defined by the Bible, what we're really saying there is, you know, 1 Corinthians 13, you say, I'm patient with you, and I'm kind to you, and I'm not arrogant toward you, and I'm not rude, and I'm not selfish. Well, that's harder to say, isn't it? Because it's this doesn't sound as true. But that's what love is. So we are to love those love people regardless of how they are acting. Thirdly, a practical application of loving others in the church is loving the neglected. In James 1, 27, he says, Pure and undefiled religion in the sight of our God and Father is this, to visit orphans and widows in their distress and to keep oneself unstained by the world. Widows and orphans. This isn't an essential part of Christ-like love. It's it's to look after those who are not looked after, those who are neglected. We're supposed to love those who are generally unloved by people. Some people groups in the church especially need to be focused on with special love and care. Widows, you know, widow, invite widows to dinner, to your Thanksgiving dinner, or you know, to your to your kids' birthday party. You know, somebody who is maybe lonely, maybe a a single person, single people in the church. Invite them in. Make them feel like part of your family. Sometimes you got people coming in uh, into town who are alone. They don't have family around and they just kind of go home and are alone. Invite single people to your house. You know, single parent families oftentimes are struggling, have needs. You know, help them with things. Give them give them the toys that, you know, your kids used to play with or help them with diapers or just go and cook a meal for them or something. Looking after those who are oftentimes overlooked, who may be struggling. You know, Jesus tells us to look out and love for those who are neglected by the world. He especially calls us to that. In Luke 14, he says, when you give a reception or when like you give a party, he says, invite the poor, the crippled, the lame, the blind." and you'll be blessed. Since they do not have the means to repay you, you'll be repaid at the resurrection of the righteous. See, Jesus was not ashamed to associate with people who the world finds uncomfortable. You know, God doesn't save people who are only from a certain income class, right? There are people who are from all sorts of different backgrounds. You know, you, you could have people who are homeless, who become members of this church because they become saved. They come to Christ, and they want to come and worship. And we, just like Jesus, be loving towards them. Jesus touched the leper. You know, he associated with those who were not generally associated with The world tends to ignore such people and to avoid them, but Jesus did. And we're not to either. So especially caring for those who are often neglected, you know, it's characterized by the widows and orphans there in the book of James. And fourthly, practical application. It's just love is all about giving, 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 giving. So we saw the example there in verse 17 of you know giving our material need or material wealth to help those who are in need. But there are other things that we can give besides possession, besides money. I think one of the biggest things that we can give, it's really basic, but it's Giving of our time to people, giving your time to people, it's is vitally important. Because without without giving your time to people, you're really not going to be able to love them because you're not spending any time with them. To talk with a brother, you know, have a meal with them, play a game with them, take a walk with them. Those are always you can get always you can give time to love your brothers. You know, loving one another includes you know helping each other and, and bearing each other's burdens problems, listening, advising. You know, simply spending time with somebody may help them with loneliness. Just giving your time in that way. Inviting them to your house for a meal can help people who are feeling unwanted. Giving good advice, being a good counselor can help people solve a problem in their life. That's loving. Teaching, even teaching somebody how to do something, a practical skill or whatever, that can help them. That can encourage them, help them accomplish more. Christ-like love just involves giving, giving, giving. It just means counting others more important than yourself. That's what Paul said. He says, have the mind of Jesus. That's his attitude, Philippians 2. He says, do nothing from selfishness or empty conceit, but with humility of mind, regard one another as more important than yourselves. Do not merely look out for your own personal interests, but also for the interests of others. Have this attitude in yourselves, which is also in Christ Jesus. So Jesus, think about this. Jesus counted us more important than himself. And he proved it because he stayed on the cross and he died. Remember when they're saying, if you're really the son of God, just call call angels down and get off the cross. And he ignored them. I'm not going to do that because I love my people. I will die for them. I will save them. I will lay down my life for them. Some of those very people who are mocking him. The thief on the cross, earlier in the crucifixion, was mocking. Later on, he's torn again. And Jesus says, you'll be with me in paradise. You're forgiven. He counted us more important than himself that he did not save his own skin, but laid down his life for us. And we're supposed to do the same. And the small things and the big things for our brothers, if we're going to be loving in a Christ-like way. So in closing here, I just want to say a word about this This sounds impossible. <laughs> I know that it sounds impossible for us as as weak sinners. How can I be motivated to actually do this to to really not care about myself so much, to be unselfish and love unconditionally, no matter what's going on you know with people and the answer is is this: you have to really look into the love of Christ that he has for you. You have to understand how Jesus loves you. And the more you understand how he loves you, the more that same character of love will flow out of you. It's just like, you know, when Jesus says, what's our motivation for forgiving people? Think about how much God has forgiven me. How can I not forgive? Same thing here. How can I not love my brothers when God has loved me? From before the foundation of the world, he predestined me in love for adoption as sons. He wanted me to be his child. Why? Not because of anything in me, but because he loved me. So he gave up his son to die for me so that I could become his adopted child. That doesn't make sense, except John just says later on, God is love. It's just who he is. You know, God told Israel that he loved Israel. He says, why do I love you, Israel? Because I love you. It's not because you're great. It's just because I love you. It's just who I am. So the more you understand God's love for you, the more you're going to be able to to lay down your life and love for others. You have to be looking into the love of Christ. Joel Beakey said this. He says, we love God because he first loved us. God does not ask us to manufacture love. Rather, he tells us that we will only love as we should when we know how we have been loved from all eternity by the triune God when the wonder of the love that gave up heaven's glory for rebellious, hell-deserving sinners breaks into your heart and mind, then true love for God and his people will grow in you. Ultimately, the cross is the answer to everything. When we come back to the cross of Christ, we realize how much God has loved us. We find love at the cross, and then we extend it to others. Looking at the love of Christ, and that's a joyous thing to do anyway, but it, it it brings out in us that love for others. So thinking about this, the question, what would Jesus do? is actually answered by the question, what has Jesus done? He laid down his life for us, and therefore we should lay down our lives for the brothers. Let's pray. Heavenly Father. We know we we don't do this. We do not do this well. We're selfish, self-centered, self-absorbed, and finding every justification to be that way. We think we deserve something. Yet you, Lord Jesus, deserving everything, humbled yourself, and you laid down your life for us. Just because it's who you are, Lord, we need to be, we need you to make us like that. We are not like you in that way. We're so different. Lord, I pray that we would not look at this text in despair or or be burdened down with feelings of guilt and condemnation, but instead not forget the very love that's described here, that you love us with a perfect love, and you couldn't prove it in any bigger way than than how you did that. You laid down your life for us. You can't demonstrate a greater love than that. So I pray that we would not turn in on ourselves and and feel like you don't love us. That would be so backwards. I pray that we would see your love. That you love us even though we are unloving. As it, as you said, you're you're kind to the ungrateful and evil, and that's us. Lord, in your grace and your mercy, we come to you, knowing that you you love to help us. You have compassion on us. You are gentle. You are humble. We don't understand why you would be humble, but you are and you get down in the dirt with us and you help us. And I pray that you would give us so much strength and zeal to be loving like Jesus, that we would know your love for us in such deep and great ways that it would just flow out of us to everyone, that we would become such a great witness to who you are that people would see your love in us because you're operating in us, bearing that fruit of the Spirit to love. Lord, we praise you and we thank you for Jesus. We know we have no hope without him.